has given to us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be equipped, thoroughly furnished for every good work. Well, let's open the Word of God this morning to John chapter 4, and we'll continue our study in the Gospel of John. John chapter 4. Jesus is, begins, this begins with the conclusion of Jesus' ministry in Samaria. Jesus went to Samaria on his way to Galilee, and there he has this remarkable conversation which we have been studying for the last month with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And that concluded with this woman being the key, the evangelistic key to the entire region, and specifically the village of Sychar such that after she accepts the Lord as her Savior, realizes His messianic claims, believes in Him, she runs into town excited about what she has learned, uh, gives the gospel claim to those in the city, and challenges them to go check it out for themselves. And they do, and they return, saying that no longer because of what uh, you said, woman, that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. There is a true revival that takes place in this town. Now, that word revival is one of those religious words that is often abused and misused in many contexts today. And a true revival is when there truly is a mass movement of positive volition and the Holy Spirit in a particular locale so that many numbers come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. This doesn't happen very often, and it is not generated by a church marking a particular week or two on their calendar and saying, we're going to have revival this week. That is not the biblical concept of a revival. The biblical concept is what happened in Sychar. This woman is the key to the city, and when she presents the gospel, they respond, and several hundred probably trusted the Lord on that particular day. And afterward, Jesus Christ went into town with his disciples. And we begin our study today in John chapter 4, verse 43. Now, the first paragraph is a transition paragraph shifting us from the events in Samaria to events in Galilee. But we have to pay attention to a little bit here to catch some background and some things that are going on in the life of Christ. Let me read the paragraph. After the two days... He went forth from there, that is in Samaria, into Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. Now, there's an interesting little problem here. 
you look at verse 4, Jesus makes this somewhat negative comment that a prophet has no honor in his own country. There's a lot of discussion as to just exactly what country means in that particular passage. Does that mean Judea in general, the Jews in general, or does that refer more specifically to Galilee? Every time this word, uh, patros, patridi, literally, here in the Greek, which refers to sort of homeland or fatherland, every time that's used in the Gospels, it refers to Galilee and specifically Nazareth and the uh, area around his hometown where he grew up. Now, put the map up here on the overhead so we can orient ourselves geographically and know where we are. Jesus has originated down his ministry down here in Jerusalem. We studied that in the first couple of chapters down through about uh, the middle of chapter 3, and then he moved out into the area here in Judea where his ministry grew in popularity, spent several months there uh, teaching. Uh, his disciples were baptizing And he was gaining more and more followers as John the Baptist was losing followers. But then there was hostility generated by the uh, Pharisees and Jesus forestalls their antagonism and heads north. He took the, the inner route, the inner road that went up through Samaria. And in this area right here, I don't know if you can see that on the overhead, but there's a little triangle here for Mount Gerizim and another one just to the north of that for Mount Ebal. In between is the town of Shechem, and Sychar was a small village on the outskirts of ancient Shechem on the uh, shoulder of Mount Gerizim, and that's where Jesus has his conversation with the woman at the ancient well uh, of Jacob. Then he moves north to Nazareth. Nazareth is up here, uh, southwest of the Sea of Galilee, uh, about... uh, 20 miles or so. And it is there that Jesus has an interesting encounter that is the source of this statement and his testimony that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So in order to catch what's going on here, hold your place and turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. Verse 16. He comes to Nazareth. Remember, in the writing of the Gospels, they don't, these are not biographies in the sense that we have biographies today, so they, they are Gospels. That means they are written with a purpose to give the good news. So the writers are amassing all of the details or whatever details they're going to use about the life of Christ and organizing them and presenting them around a particular theme. So they do not always pick up on everything that happened in his life. They don't try to cover every detail, but just those, those elements of his life that support the particular thesis of that gospel writer. So Luke completely leaves out all of this information that we've been covering in John chapter 3 and chapters 4, and that material is unique to the gospel of John. And he, Luke picks up his uh, writing with this visit to Nazareth. Verse 16, And he came to Nazareth, he being Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. This is hometown. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And this could take place in the course of the synagogue meeting that one of the men would stand up in order to read the scripture reading for that particular day and they would hand him the scroll 
and he would read the scripture. So they handed him the scroll from the book of the prophet Isaiah, verse 17. This was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. And he began to read from Isaiah 61, the first two verses. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Stop. In the middle of a verse. Now, I've always been fascinated by this particular incident because it is so important to understanding the Scriptures and to being able to correctly interpret the Scripture. A couple of observations, though, about the thrust of this particular verse, this particular quotation. It presents the Messianic claims and the credentials of the Messiah. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. Captives of what? Of sin. We are all born in the slave market of sin, and we are born slaves to sin. And recovery of sight to the blind. Not only the physical blind at one level, but the spiritually blind. This is often blindness is often used as a metaphor for the unbeliever, the unsaved. They are spiritually blind. First Corinthians two. Uh, 14 says that the, uh, the natural man, that is the soulish man, the unsaved man, cannot under th- understand the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. So we are all born spiritually brain dead and spiritually blind, and so only through regeneration do we recover spiritual sight. But Jesus, as the Messiah, is going to restore physical sight to show that he can restore spiritual sight. So part of establishing his Credentials as Messiah, he will heal the blind, set free those who are downtrodden, and proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Now, hold your place there. See, I've got you really twisted up now. You've got one finger in John, one finger in Luke, and now we're going to go to Isaiah 61. And we're going to go back to Luke and then back to John in that order, so be prepared. You're going to have one finger in John, one finger in Luke, one finger in Isaiah, and you're going to have your notebook precariously balanced on your left knee while you're trying to take notes. This is an exercise in in physical agility and coordination this morning. Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. That's the word Mashiach, Messiah, the Anointed One, which is translated into Greek Christos, which is a title for Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and freedom to prisoners, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. But it doesn't stop there, does it? keeps going. And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, Why didn't Jesus read the rest of that? He didn't read the rest of it because there's a distinction between the two advents of Jesus Christ. In his first coming, Jesus Christ was going to accomplish the payment for sin. That is, pay the price. Redemption is an economic term, meaning to pay the price, uh, the ransom price, or to pay the price for a slave. And at his death on the cross, Jesus Christ redeemed us from the slave market of sin. And that's what the first half down to the first phrase in verse 2 has to do with. It relates to the first advent. What takes place after that, 
from the second, uh, second major line in Isaiah 61-2 relates to what Jesus Christ will accomplish at the second coming. Now, this is kind of gets us a little far afield, but since I'm here, we don't always get the opportunity to make points like this. We'll just stop a minute and get sidetracked. If you've ever been someplace where there are high mountains, like in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado or New Mexico, when you're approaching the front range of Colorado from Kansas, you see them off in the horizon and you will look at them and you might, they might look something like this. You'll see a couple of mountain peaks and in the front there's another peak and they look like they're part of the same mountain. This is what happened in the Old Testament. The Jews looked, had these prophecies like Isaiah 61, and because they were looking down the corridor of time, much as we would look at a couple of mountains backed up to one another, it appeared to them that the advents of Jesus Christ were one. But if you turn this and were to look at it sideways, you might realize that that front mountain is separated by the back mountain by uh, 20, 30, 40 miles. There might be a huge valley in between, but because you lacked the right perspective, it appears as if they are part of the same mountain. That's what happened in the Old Testament. As they prophesied about the coming of Messiah, they often, the prophecies involved both advents as if they were one advent, but in fact they're two. So when Jesus stands up, and reads from Isaiah 61.1 down through 2a, and stops, he is making a theological point about the first advent. Back to Luke chapter 4. After Jesus reads from this passage, he closes the book, he gives it back to the attendant, and he sits down. He has taken on the role of what was called a maftir. A maftir is one who was the reader of the lesson in the synagogue. And after the maftir would read from the lesson, then the rabbi would sit down, not like today where the preacher stands up and preaches. The rabbi would take his seat, and from there he would answer questions and give his discourse on the reading, scripture reading from that, that morning. So Jesus sits down. He closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. He assumes the role of a rabbi. And the eyes of all in the synagogue are fixed upon him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That must have just resounded off the walls that day. They knew that this was a messianic passage. And what he has done is, by stopping in the middle of that verse, is saying that the whole messianic plan is not fulfilled at one coming. But they're not positive. So they're not operating on positive volition. The crowd in Nazareth is, ne- Nazareth is negative to doctrine, negative to the Word of God, and all they can do is focus on the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ and say, My, my, now isn't this little Jesus... We knew him running around here at Joseph's knee, and we knew his mama Mary. We saw all those little brothers and sisters of his. And, and uh, what does he mean by all of this? Who is he to make these kinds of proclamations? This is verse 22. And all were speaking well of him, and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? 
And he said to them, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, where he had performed some miracles, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. This is the background for the quote. All John gives us is the quote. Because the thrust of the quote is to show that something uh, is to make a point about John's argument in the gospel. In John's argument of the gospel, he is making a claim that Jesus is the Messiah. In his presentation of the Messiah, we see Jesus initiating his, his public role at Cana where he performs the first sign. What is it that John says in John 20:31? These signs are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life through His name. First signs given at Cana. Shortly thereafter, Jesus goes to Jerusalem. At Jerusalem, He cleans out the temple. He performs various miracles. There are many Galileans there and they witness these miracles and hear about the miracles and they are impressed with the miracles. And then he has a conversation with a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. We don't know if Nicodemus, I think Nicodemus was saved at that point, but the text doesn't tell us and it's not clear. He leaves Jerusalem and he goes to Judea. In Judea, his followers uh, increase, so he has an increased popularity, but also hostility. Now, what happens at the end of John chapter 2? We're told of something very very interesting and illuminating that, that gives a little thematic clue as to what John wants us to pay attention to. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name. They are true, regenerate believers. This phrase, believe in his name throughout the Gospel of John, indicates faith alone in Christ alone and salvation. Beholding his signs, which he was doing, they understood that he was establishing his messianic credentials. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And this is a reference to the omniscience of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is true humanity. He has all of the attributes of deity, sovereignty, righteousness, justice, love, eternal life, omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, veracity, and immutability. He does not give up any of those attributes in the incarnation. He willingly, voluntarily restricted his independent use. This is a definition of kenosis, the Greek word found in Philippians chapter 2. He voluntarily restricts the independent use of his divine attributes in order to fulfill the Father's plan. doesn't mean he doesn't use them anymore. He still uses them and he demonstrates, and John is showing us in these chapters that he demonstrates his omniscience. First, right after it says that Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them because he, for he knew all men, And because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man, we immediately go to the incident with Nicodemus. And there we learn that he knows exactly what is on Nicodemus' mind when Nicodemus comes to him at night and says, "Um, We know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. And Jesus goes to the heart of the issue and says, No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. 
So we see his omniscience, that he knows what's going on with Nicodemus. Then he knows what's going on with the Pharisees. After his popularity increases, when the Pharisees um, are beginning to take cognizance of Jesus' activities, what do we find in chapter 4, verse 1? When therefore the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, he left Judea. Jesus is exhibiting his omniscience. He knows what the Pharisees have on their mind. It's too early for him to get into an antagonistic relationship with them. He has much to accomplish, so he leaves Judea and heads north. On his way north, he runs into the Samaritan woman at the well, and he demonstrates to her that he knows and understands her deepest needs, and he knows her as no one else knows her and loves her in spite of that and offers her eternal life, and she accepts that. And now, as we come to the conclusion of this uh, section within the Gospel, we are going to see that he knows what's going on in the minds of the Galileans and that they are more interested in signs and wonders and miracles than they are in doctrine. Not that there aren't some that are positive to doctrine, but that there are many more who are more interested in the signs and wonders and miracles. And we see the same thing going on in our churches today. There are many churches where they are much more interested in trying to generate miracles and signs and wonders and healings than in communicating Bible doctrine and learning the Scripture so that they can grow and advance to spiritual maturity. That's the background, is that the Galileans, Jesus has been rejected. There's hostility in the south, in, in Jerusalem and Judea. There is a true, genuine, uh, excited reception of Jesus in Samaria. I mean, they just are excited. And then we see this contrast again with the Galileans who have a superficial reception of Jesus based upon his uh, wonder-working powers. They look upon him as a rabbi still who's just able to do some pretty marvelous things. So John is a little bit sarcastic here when he says that when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him. It's sort of a conditional reception because it is based upon uh, what took place in Jerusalem. And there we have an adverbial causative an adverbial participle of cause, it should be more correctly translated, because they had seen all the things he did in Jerusalem. When he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him because he could perform miracles. That's what John is saying. Now, is it not because they understood he was Messiah and that he was going to die on the cross for their sins, but because he was a miracle worker and that he was going to uh, do things for them. So they, they remembered they had traveled down to the south and they knew that Jesus had, had uh, performed these miracles. And now we come to the incident of the uh, aristocrat, the royal official, who comes to Jesus for healing. Verse 46. He, that is Jesus, came therefore again to Cana of Galilee. So let's trace his route. He was in the south. He went up from Judea to Samaria where he talks to the woman at the well. 
Then he went to Nazareth. That's the origin of verse 44. Prophet has no honor in his own country. John ignores all those other events around that and just gives us the point because he wants us to realize that the Galileans have a conditional acceptance. It's a conditional acceptance. He goes to Nazareth, and then after that episode, which we read in Luke chapter 4, he goes across the valley to the north, just about four or five miles, to the small village of Cana of Galilee, which is where he performed the first sign. And here he will perform the second sign. That is what we read in verse 54. This is, again, a second sign. So we have what we would call in literature an inclusio. Those of you who know anything about artillery, this is called bracketing, where you enclose a segment with similar events. The beginning is a cana, the first sign, the second sign. So we see in in terms of its literary presentation, John sees this as all one inclusive episode, and he is trying to make certain points for us about Jesus presenting himself as Messiah. So this will conclude this particular section of the Gospel. It focuses on a very interesting individual. Notice the people that we've seen in John so far. We've seen uh, Nicodemus, who is a ruler of the Jews. We have seen the, uh, we can go back before that, to the bride and bridegroom and the the uh, head waiter who was surprised about the water being turned into wine, that such good wine was being saved, uh, served after, after the uh, wine of inferior quality, and usually it's the other way around. Then we ran into Nicodemus, who's a ruler of the Jews, probably the best, uh, one of the best Bible teachers at that time, and how confused he was about the truth of grace and the truth of the gospel. And then we had some uh, insights into John the Baptist, then the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman. And now we have, a, I believe, a Gentile. Where it's not stated. He could be Jewish, but probably not. A Gentile aristocrat from the court of Herod Antipas. And this uh, aristocrat comes to Jesus. It's about 20 miles from Capernaum. Uh, Herod Antipas had a palace in Capernaum where they would often go and and um, have their celebrations and banquets and parties and among the, uh, royalty and aristocracy in this area. Herod Antipas was the heir of, Her- heir of Herod the Great, and he ruled Galilee in this northern area. And he's the Herod that is usually referred to in the Gospels and Acts outside of um, uh, Herod the Great at the initial, at the beginning points of the Gospel. So this involves this uh, royal official who has heard about Jesus and his uh, miracle working and that he could heal the sick. This royal official lives in Capernaum. Now, we didn't spend a lot of time on this, but just because you need to be reminded, at the very beginning, get our chronology here on the life of Christ. Jesus comes to John the Baptist where he is bap- baptized. He goes out into the wilderness for 40 days of testing. He comes back where you have the four days in the life of John the Baptist in John chapter 1 where he picks up uh, John and about five other disciples. John and Peter and Andrew and Nathaniel picks up these disciples and then he heads up to Cana. Right after the wedding at Cana, it says he went to Capernaum. So he shifted his residence at Capernaum and he was there for maybe a week or two 
We don't know how long. And it says shortly thereafter. So it's just a short time. He went to Jerusalem for the first Passover. So he has been in Capernaum. And the implications from the Luke 4 passage is that he has performed miracles in Capernaum already, even though nothing we've looked at clearly states that. And that's the background for for this man's knowledge. He knows that Jesus can perform miracles. Capernaum is located on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, right up here. And this is about um, 20 miles or so from, from Cana there. So it's about a four to five hour walk. Verse 46, Jesus came therefore again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. Now we do not know what the disease was, but we do know that it was. It seemed to be fatal. And he is almost, the father loves his son very much, and he is almost in a panicky state to get his son healed. This often happens with people when they have some kind of fatal or serious illness. They will start trying, not that I'm saying he is, but I've seen this with people, they'll try any kind of thing to get healed. They will go to any person who claims they can heal. They will try any kind of quack medication in order to solve the problem because they're in a state of panic and operating on emotion and they're no longer operating on objectivity. It's amazing how many believers who have gotten away from doctrine and forget that God has a plan and purpose for their life, that God has your days numbered no matter how healthy you eat, no matter how much exercise you get, no matter how careful you are, that will not add one day to your life. God has determined that already. That does not mean that you should treat that licentiously and just go out and abuse yourself. Your quality of life will deteriorate and your last ten years may be very miserable. But your days are numbered. They are in the hands of God. God has determined the time, the manner, and the place of our death. So since that's already been determined, that's been set from eternity past, we need to just relax and accept it and put that in the Lord's hands. And when that time comes, we need to face it on the basis of grace and not and trusting God and not panic. But this man doesn't have any doctrine and he is panicking. I think he is a believer. I base that on the fact that he calls Jesus Lord. The New American Standard translates it Sir, but in the Greek it's Kurios, the word for Lord down in verse 49. So I think he recognizes the deity of Christ. And it's interesting that it is a Gentile in chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, who responds. The Gentiles in Samaria that respond to the gospel. And it is a Gentile nobleman here in in, uh, verse 46 who responds. But it is not the Galileans and the uh, the Pharisees who are responding to the gospel. So, his son is in a state of, of sickness, a fatal disease. And the father is described as a royal official. In the Greek, this is basilikos. Looks like this. Basilikos. B-A-S-I-L-I-K-O-S. From basileia, the word for kingdom. It is someone who is related to the function and operation of of a kingdom, the administration of a kingdom. So he is in a high position in the court of Herod Antipas. 
He's probably very wealthy. He's in a high position. He can avail himself of the best medical care available, yet nothing can help. Political position, uh, aristocratic position, money, nothing can help. And so he goes to Jesus in order to find help for his son. Verse 47, when he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was requesting him to come down and heal his son. Now, the word translated was requested is in the imperfect active in the original. And it means to beg, to continue begging. Imperfect is continual action in past time. So he is continuously begging the Lord Jesus Christ to heal his son because he is about to die. Verse 48, Jesus therefore said to him, now, this is very interesting. He, Jesus does not seem to exhibit a tremendous amount of compassion at this point, does he? Here this man is pushing the panic button because his son is about to die. He loves his son and cares about him very much, and he is distraught, and he is just begging Jesus over and over. Everywhere Jesus is going, there's this man saying, Jesus, please, come to Capernaum. Take time away. It's only only a four-hour walk. Come to Capernaum and heal my son. Jesus seems to rebuke him. He says, he turns to him and says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now the word people and the word simply are not in the original text. The original text uses a second person plural in both places. So we need to translate this as Texans do. Unless you all see signs and wonders, y'all will not believe. It is the plural. He is saying to him. Him is how many people? Him is singular. These are the details of the text that are important because they are interpretive clues. He turns to this man because this man is the one who's asking him, but he's not really talking to the man. He's talking to all the Galileans who have this superficial response. He says, none of you all will respond unless you see signs and wonders. You're just in this for the show. There probably is a mild rebuke toward him, but this man is exhibiting faith and he does trust the Lord and he knows that Jesus Christ can indeed solve the problem. Now, the Scriptures, the New Testament tells us that Jews were constantly seeking for a sign. They const- and they saw it over and over again. This is a sub-point that John wants us to pay attention to, is that Jesus is presenting more than enough evidence of His Messiahship in, in His life. He has performed miracle after miracle. All of these are signs that He is indeed the Messiah, and so that Israel has absolutely no excuse for not recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Now remember what Jesus said to Thomas. After Thomas doubted that Jesus had been raised from the dead, and he said, well, I won't believe it until I see him. I've got to have that empirical data. I've got to be able to see the wounds in his hands, the wounds in his side, then I'll believe. And then Jesus appears to him. And Jesus said in John 20, 29, Because you, Thomas, have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see 
and believe. That is pure faith. It is not related to empiricism or rationalism, but it is related solely to to trusting the Word of God. And then John says in, in the next verse, many other signs therefore Jesus did. So these signs are given to provide us with rational, I keep emphasizing this, rational, historical, verifiable evidence. Faith is not just some abstract faith that's subjective impression on, oh, I'm, this feels so good, it must be right, in spite of all evidence and in spite of all data. Faith does not mean you put your, you put your brain in neutral. Faith is not anti-rational or anti-cognitive. Faith is the, is the, it's not the operation of the emotion, it's the operation of the cognition part of the soul. And even though we can't go back and verify these events, at the time that these events were written, for the most part, now by the time John wrote this gospel, many years had gone by, but with the other gospels, they were written when the eyewitnesses were still alive and the records were still available in the temple to go back and check what had happened, what the eyewitness accounts were regarding the life of Christ. So that faith is rational, historical, and verifiable, and John is giving us that information in this gospel. That belief is not something that is just this subjective impression of some kind of of encounter with Jesus. It is based upon historical events. Now, after Jesus rebukes the people, the royal official says to him again, Sir, that is Lord, literally kurios, he is addressing his deity, Lord, come down before my child dies. Now Jesus turns to him and says, Go your way, your son lives. Instantly. Notice the response. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he started off. He began to leave. And then it says in verse 51, And as he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. They said, Therefore, yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Now, that's the important word, is yesterday. What has happened is that the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he started off, and that's the verb peruamai, which means he went about his business. He didn't head home. He didn't pack his bags, get on his donkey, and head to Capernaum 20 miles away because if he had done so, remember it says that the healing took place at the seventh hour, which according to Galilean time would have been one o'clock in the afternoon. So he, he meets Jesus on the morning. He talks to Jesus. He begs Jesus to heal his son. Jesus tells him that your son is healed. He lives. That's one o'clock in the afternoon. The man could, had started off to go home four hours later, five o'clock in the afternoon. He's home. He's home before nightfall. He doesn't go home because it's yesterday that his servants tell him that his son was healed. He stayed over a night. Why? Because he believes Jesus. He rested in what he heard. That's called the faith rest drill. He relaxes. He's not worried anymore. At one minute, this guy's punching the panic button because his son's about to die and he doesn't want him to die. And Jesus said, your son lives. He said, okay, great. Now let's go see some friends here I haven't seen in a while in Capernaum and 
go out to eat and have a good meal and, and get a good night's rest because, boy, I'm tired. I've been wrestling with this for days and worried about my son, and now I'm just going to relax, and then I'll head home. He doesn't give it another second's thought because Jesus had told him the truth, and he believes instantly what Jesus has said, and so he relaxes. And that shows us that it is doctrine, folks, that stabilizes our emotions. When we get in a position of fear, of panic, anxiety, worry, what is it that stabilizes us and gives us focus in life is not emotion, not going to church, not singing wonderful hymns, but it's focusing on doctrine. Now, little caveat, there are some hymns that have great doctrine and that can be part of it. But it is the doctrine, it is the content, it is the promise of God that gives us what we need so that we can relax and have inner peace and contentment and tranquility, that peace of God that surpasses all comprehension. And this is what happens. He relaxes. He has heard the voice of God. He knows that this is the voice of God. And he knows that his son is well, so he relaxes because he believes what Jesus said. So that brings us to the doctrine of faith. We need to review this. This has been emphasized several times in recent verses. When we saw back in in verse 41... Uh, the response of the Samaritans, and many more believed because of his word. And they told the Samaritan woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Belief is the key issue in the Gospel of John, and it is a word that is poorly understood today. In fact, some people want to say it means commitment. Some people want to say it means invite Jesus into your heart. There are all kinds of different screwball interpretations of the word believe. But believe basically means to entrust yourself to something, to accept something as true. So we need to review the doctrine of faith. Point number one, faith is a mental activity triggered by volition. You either believe or you don't believe. It is your responsibility determined by your choice. As such, faith is not emotion because emotion cannot respond to a command. What's the command? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You cannot respond to a command with emotion. You respond to a command with your volition and with an activity in the cognitive part of the soul called the mentality of the soul. So point number one, faith is a mental activity triggered by volition. Point number two, faith is always directed toward an object which can be expressed as a proposition. A proposition is a statement with a subject and a verb. The scriptures are what is called propositional truth. They are clear statements given by God about the nature of reality. So faith is always directed toward an object expressed as a proposition. We do not believe in Jesus in the sense that we have a personal relationship with Jesus. Some people will say, well, faith means that you have a personal relationship with Jesus. Unless I'm mistaken, and some of you are holding out on me, there's not one person in this room who has ever personally seen Jesus. Not one of you. Unless you got off your medication. <laughs> the only way you know about Jesus is because you met Him through a proposition in the Scriptures. That's what I'm saying. This is propositional. This tells you things. These are words on a page 
and those words on the page told you about Jesus, that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father except by me. And you said, I believe that. You believed a proposition that Jesus is the only way to heaven. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And you said, I believe that. That's true. That's what faith is. That's what I mean when I say faith is always directed toward an object which is expressed as a proposition. Once you accept, I believe Jesus died on the cross for my sins, then you begin to have a relationship with Jesus Christ on the basis of what? Propositional information given in the Scriptures. Because we don't know Jesus by having a personal encounter with Jesus. That doesn't do it, folks. It didn't do it for Judas. And it didn't do it for, for a lot of other Pharisees. They had all kinds of personal encounters with Jesus. And they're in the lake of fire. It's whether or not you believe a certain propositions. Now, the situation here does not relate to salvation. It relates to the healing of his son. And the nobleman says, I believe the proposition that the boy's well. Because I believe it's true, I'm relaxed. I'm going to rest in that. You see, that's what happens when you really believe something is true. It's like when I do that monthly activity that I abhor called balancing the checkbook. For years, I could never get it right. and Finally, someone taught me how to do it again and again and again. Repetition is the key to learning. And I could do this, and I keep it pretty well on a month-to-month basis, balanced to the penny. Now, I won't ever do that again because I've, I've bragged about it. <laughs> what happens is when I finally get to that point and I add up all the columns and they agree with one another, what do I do? Do I go back and check it again? No, I don't. I put the pencil down and I rest. Because I believe I'm assenting to the proposition that the two columns, when the the sums equal one another, then I'm okay in my checkbook. So when you believe something, the result is relaxation and rest. Okay, point number three here. Therefore, with regard to salvation, you do not believe in a person or come to salvation through a relationship with Jesus, but first you believe the propositions in, in Scripture that inform you about Jesus and His saving work. Now, what does that mean? That means faith is rational. It is part of the cognitive operation of the soul. It is not irrational. It's not emotional. Now, what you believe may be irrational, But faith itself is not irrational. Point number four, therefore faith must be an activity of the mentality of the soul. It's a cognitive function, not an emotive function. So for the immature believer, it is the scripture that is the object of faith. We believe the scripture. Faith rest drill, you mix the promises of God with faith. Faith means that God's Word is more real to you than your experience, than your reason, than anything else that anybody tells you. Nothing is more real to you than the Word of God. And for the mature believer, it is not only the Scripture, but the doctrine that you have learned, those doctrinal principles that have been extracted from the promises of God and from the Scripture that tell you about reality. So for the the immature believer relies exclusively on the promises. The mature believer mixes not only mixes faith with the promises of God, but also with the doctrine that he has learned. Point number five. Faith has no merit in itself. It is not faith that saves. 
It's the object of faith that saves. Everybody can have faith. They can believe all. It is the object of faith that saves. Faith has no merit in itself. All the merit is in the object of faith, which for salvation is Jesus Christ's substitutionary death on the cross. If I believe that I have uh, paid up all of my uh, money for income tax and that um, everything is squared away with the government and they do not say that, where am I? I'm in serious trouble. It doesn't matter how sincere I am. The IRS does not care. What they care about is their figures, not my figures, unless I have really good figures and a well-paid accountant. So faith, therefore, is not in and of itself meritorious, but the object of faith is what has all the merit. Point number six. Faith as an intellectual activity. Now, some people just rail at that, but I hope I've established the point that it's intellectual, it's not emotional. It excludes emotion, irrationalism, and mysticism. Faith by definition, as an intellectual activity, excludes all of that. And therefore, we must conclude that emotion, irrationalism, and mysticism are dangerous, if not destructive, to salvation and spiritual life. Now, that does not mean that we cannot have legitimate emotion as a response to what's going on in the mentality of our soul. When we understand that God has saved us, we relax, we have peace, tranquility, contentment, just like the nobleman did. Man, there's joy there, even excitement. That's not wrong. But as soon as you start shifting over and putting the emphasis on the joy, the excitement, and the enthusiasm, that that's what makes it real, that's when you're in trouble. That's when it becomes dangerous. It's not the joy. That, that's just the result. And we enjoy that. and we, we revel in those emotions sometimes. Oh, it feels so good. But that's not the point. The point in life is not to feel good. The point in life is to trust God and believe God and grow to spiritual maturity. So faith is an intellectual activity. Faith excludes emotion. Now, emotion will have its legitimate result, and sometimes it will even generate excitement and enthusiasm, as it did with the Samaritan woman. And we saw how excited she was. Some of us need a little bit of that every now and then, remembering what the Lord did for us. And she's excited, and she runs around, and she's telling everybody about her salvation. There's nothing wrong with that. But she's saved because of what Christ did, not because she feels so great about it. That's the mistake that people run into. Point number seven. Faith is rational and logical in conformity with the ultimate person of the universe, Jesus Christ, who is called the logos. Logos meaning reason. It's the Greek word from which we get logic. Reason, thought, logic, communication are all part of the meaning of logos. Point number eight, all the faith in the world secures nothing but condemnation from God unless that faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And faith in Christ alone secures eternal salvation. What does John 3.18 say? He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already. It is faith in Christ that matters. That is the issue. Okay. Brings us down to John uh, 4, 51 through 53. 
We've read through 52, 53. So the father knew that it was at the hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives, and he himself believed in his whole household. So here we know that they're all saved. And what so often happens in the ancient world is that the entire household would follow the leadership of the father. Now this happens in many, many non-Western cultures today. That the, It's not that they're riding on the coattails of the head of the household. And it's not a superficial faith. But that... Everybody, there, there's an integrity to the family, and there's an integrity to the community. So that, and this would happen in the in the ancient or in early times, the chief, you would go to the chief of the tribe, explain the gospel, he would accept, and then everybody would follow. Not, be, and it's their faith too. I mean, this is just the way their culture works, and they operate as a whole. So, as a result of all of this, this is when he is saved and his whole household. Everybody becomes believers. Now this brings us to a very important doctrine that we have to get into and is going to be the backdrop not only for this passage but the one to come in the beginning of John 5 and that is the doctrine of healing. So let's break open the doctrine of healing. Point number one. There are three key words used for the doctrine of healing in the Greek. The first is the word thera. That's where we get our English word therapeutic. T-H-E-R-A-P-E-U-O. Then we have the word hiaomai. H-I-A-O-M-A-I. And then the third word is the word sozo. S-O-Z-O. Now, where have we seen that last word? That's the common word for salvation. But the basic root meaning of sozo is deliverance, and you have to always pay attention in context as to what the person is delivered from. If the context is a physical illness, then it has the connotation of healing. Therapeutic means to serve, to heal, or to cure. In the New Testament, though, It is always used of healing and is the primary word that is used for healing in the Gospels and Acts. Hiaomai goes a little, goes a step further. Hiaomai means to heal and to cure, but it also means to be made whole and it can be, refer to spiritual wholeness. Physical or spiritual wholeness. And then sozo means to deliver or save and in context related to uh, to physical illness, it means deliverance from a disease. So these are the three key words that are used, and they're used interchangeably, uh, in, in the, and they're used in both of these passages. The one we just discovered, or just looked at, used the word uh, hiaomai, and therapeuo, or excuse me, used the word therapeuo, and hiaomai is used in the first part of chapter 5. Point number two, the causes for sickness. What is the cause for sickness? Well, there are five. Ultimately, all sickness is a result of Adam's fall. When Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden, in an environment of absolute perfection, there was no disease. There was, it was an absolutely perfect environment. But once sin entered, it radically changed the environment. This is what's important to understand. It changed the environment. Up until the fall, all animals 
were herbivorous or gramnivorous. That means they ate grass. They were no carnivores prior to the fall. You have carnivores develop after the fall. Now think about the shifts that take place. You have a shift in the whole digestive system from the kind of digestive system needed to deal with red meat and, 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 and the kind that's necessary to deal with just grass. It changes your dental structure, the teeth. All kinds of things were affected as a result of the flood. So it's, I mean the fall. So it's a very complex, very complex consequences result. Man is, because he is spiritually dead, he is going to be subject to physical death. There is going to be a deterioration within certain, uh, shall we call them species, I'm not sure what the correct term is, but there will be the development of viruses and bacteria that are harmful to mankind. So that brings us to the second category of sickness, which is biological, and that is, includes constitutional defects such as a a birth defect, uh, blindness, deafness from birth defect, genetic malfunctions that may uh, either at birth or later in life cause some disease or, or uh, uh, someone to develop cancer or some other form of, of illness, uh, cellular breakdown, virus, bacteria, various physiological, biological causes for illness. So that's category two. Category three is psychosomatic. This is a case of, of uh, the influence of, of one, a person's emotional status, and it may result in real or only perceived disease. There may be symptoms there, but there may be no constitutional disease. And this is the result of the conversion of adversity into stress. And in, in the case of the believer, when there is no use of the problem-solving devices to prevent that, this, when adversity is converted to stress, to stress it affects the immune system, which also causes susceptibility to biological disease. The fourth category of the cause of disease is spiritual. This is from divine discipline, which is the law of volitional responsibility. Because you are operating in sin, perhaps you get involved with drug abuse or you get involved in sexual immorality and you have multiple sex partners and you end up with AIDS. Uh, various other diseases. So ultimately the root is spiritual, even though it also involves biological causes. It may ultimately comes from the law of volitional responsibility and divine punitive action. And fifth, demonic. Now in the case of the demonic, it may or may not work through natural causes. May or may not work through natural biological causes. So uh, <clears throat> the third category was psychosomatic. The fourth category was spiritual as a part of divine discipline. And the fifth category would be uh, demonic. Those are the causes for disease. Point number three. A quick summary of suffering, what the Bible teaches us about suffering. First of all, we live in a fallen world. Because of Adam's sin, we live in an environment that is no longer perfect, and so we are subject to decay, to disorder, to disease, and to death. Secondly, from our own volition, because we make wrong choices, the law of volitional responsibility comes into effect, and we suffer as a consequence of our own bad decisions. 
Third, we suffer because we are associated with people who make bad decisions. They operate on negative volition, so they come under divine discipline or divine suffering, and we suffer with them, people that we are associated with in any of the divine institutions, whether it's marriage, family, government, nation, whatever, somebody makes a bad decision, it affects us. Fourth reason for suffering is blessing, is for blessing and spiritual advancement under the doctrine of evaluation testing, James 1, 2 through 4. This includes people testing, system testing, bureaucracy testing, which I'm becoming familiar with lately. Some of you know that. Uh, Thought testing. I've been trying to get my cars registered up here, and this Connecticut motor vehicle system is driving me nuts. I've been down there at least five times, and and it's never right. I've never had so much, in 20 years of car ownership, I have never in my life seen such an. <laughs> now I've got to rebound and get back in fellowship. <clears throat> we suffer from demonic attack. Now, we never know when we're being attacked by demons or whether it's something else. I want to make that point clear. So what's the response? The response is, and then, then lastly, it can be any combination of the above. Now, I want to make this point clear. The cause of suffering is not always certain. Now, sometimes you screw up and you know it. But the cause of suffering is not always certain and it's not necessary to know. The point I'm making here is you don't need to know whether or not you're coming under attack from demons or whether it's just the general cosmic system or what it is, contrary to what a lot of people teach. The issue, the solution is always, always the same. It is a faith rest drill. It's using the problem-solving devices. In those passages on spiritual warfare in 1 Peter 5, in Ephesians chapter 6, the solution is always take your stand, defense. It is always on the basis of the word histemi, which means to take a stand. It is a defensive posture. It is not an aggressive position. It means to stand behind the buckler of faith, the fortress that we build in our souls from doctrine, and to let the battle be the Lord's. That's the key in spiritual warfare. The battle is the Lord's. It is not for us to go out and kick Satan's butt or stomp on him. And I've seen preachers get up on the stage and jump up and down on the devil and do all kinds of crazy antics. And that is so far from the Word of God, it's just pathetic. The Bible says don't get involved with anything demonic. Don't try to rebuke the devil. Never do, as that said in Scripture, we are to take our stand. We are to resist the devil. That means to take a stand where? In the Word of God, trusting God, and let the battle be the Lord's. So it doesn't matter the source. The solution is always the same. Fourth point. Third point was the summary of why we suffer. The fourth point is Jesus' healing during the time of the Incarnation was to establish His credentials as the Messiah. Jesus did not come to alleviate the suffering of the world. Now, I know that probably shocks some of you because that's not what you were taught in Sunday school. Jesus did not come to alleviate the suffering of the world. If He did, He failed miserably. As we're going to see next week when he goes into this pathetic little place at the pool of Bethesda where all these sick people are waiting around following their superstition, he only heals one person. If his mission was to alleviate suffering, he would heal everybody. But his mission wasn't to heal people. His mission was to die on the cross as a substitute for our sins and to establish his credentials as the Messiah. This he does. Isaiah 53.5 says... He was crushed for our iniquities, a chastening for our well-being fell upon Him, and by His scourging we are healed. His atonement provides the basis ultimately for healing. 
the healing ministry of the of the Messiah is given in Isaiah 35, 4 and 5. Say to those with anxious heart, take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. In Jeremiah 8.22 says, Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then has not the health of the daughter of my people been restored? Implication, it will be restored under the Messiah. Jeremiah 33.6, Behold, I will bring to it health and healing, and I will heal them, and I will reveal to them an abundance of peace and truth. Ultimately, this happens when the Messiah establishes his kingdom. But when Jesus was presenting his offer before it was rejected, he was establishing his credentials through healing. It was not to alleviate all the suffering in the world. Point number five, apostolic healing also established the credentials of the apostles during the pre-canon era when the gospel was initially being proclaimed. 2 Corinthians 12.12 says that signs and wonders were the specific calling card of the apostles. How did you know if they were apostles and prophets? By signs and wonders. This was not something that every single believer was used to. It was, healing was not common. It was very uncommon and took place. Very few people healed and very few, and even, and not even fewer, but very few were the recipients of healing. And in Acts, you have the uh, situation in Acts uh, chapters 3 and 4, where Peter and John healed the lame man. Then in Acts 5 and 12, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's part- portico. Acts 8, 7, For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. And then in Acts 9, 34, and all, Acts 1 through 9 all takes place in the early part of the apostolic era in a period of about five years. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you, arise and make your bed, and immediately he rose. After that, healing is mentioned only in Acts 10, Acts 19, and then all the way down in Acts 28. It begins to be less and less common, fewer and fewer miracles. Remember, as we saw in the first hour this morning, when Paul first came to Galatia, he had a disease. He had some sort of illness, and he could not heal himself. Paul could not heal Epaphroditus in Philippians chapter 2, 25 and 26. Epaphroditus was one of his entourage, one of his, the men he was training in the ministry, and he almost died, but Paul could not heal him. And then Paul could not heal him, Timothy and told Timothy he needed to drink a little wine for his stomach's sake. So what we see from this is by the closing of the apostolic era, it was less and less active. Point number six. The spiritual gift of healing operated during the apostolic period, but like any spiritual gift, it was under the control of the person with the gift. That means that if I had the gift of healing, I could go down to Bacchus Hospital and walk down the wards and everybody would be healed and it wouldn't have anything to do with whether or not they were believers. Remember, the nobleman's son that just got healed was not a believer. The man who gets healed next week in John 5 is not a believer. The one, the one in... The nobleman's son becomes a believer, but I do not believe the guy in John 5 becomes a believer, or at least it's not apparent from the text. So healing in the scripture is not necessarily conditioned upon faith either, and that's another misnomer. 
The spiritual gift was temporary. It was designed to give credentials to the apostles and prophets, and it was a temporary gift along with tongues, miracles, wisdom, knowledge, and died out with the closing of the canon according to 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 13. Seven. And the interesting thing about healing in the New Testament is that most of the people who are healed have major defects. They're blind. Blind from birth. Everybody knows it. They're, they're lame. They're crippled. They're withered. They're paralyzed. They're lepers. I mean, these are phenomenal diseases. They're, 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 this isn't this leg lengthening stuff or somebody with a back problem that happens in so many healing services today. Um, Point number eight, I'm going to go through the next ones rapidly because I want to get to the last one because it wraps it up and ties it in and then we'll go back over these again next week. In the timeline of miracles in the Bible, Moses had miracles in 1445 B.C. There was Joshua. There were a couple of miracles with the judges. Elijah and Elisha about 200 years after Moses and, and Joshua. Then there's very little miracles until the New Testament era when the 70 are sent out under the ministry of Jesus, the ministry of Christ, of course. The apostles do, but most of their miracles occur between 32 and 52 A.D., and after that, it's silent. Point number nine, there is a warning, a serious warning in 2 Thessalonians 2.9 that the Antichrist is, is followed because of his power and signs and false wonders. So miracles and healings can be performed by many people and they are not necessarily genuine. There is a lot of information that has to be investigated before you can authenticate um, some sort of miracle. Today we live in an era uh, of modern day faith healing that has its roots in positive uh, mental uh, thought that came out of uh, a man named Phineas Quimby who lived in the mid-19th century. Phineas Quimby's most uh, uh, well-known disciple was Mary Baker Glover Patterson Eddy who founded the Chris- Christian Science uh, denomination. And he also influenced another man by the name of E.W. Kenyon. E.W. Kenyon, I'm not sure if he was a believer or not, but E.W. Kenyon was, was almost plagiarized, and that's been proven in a number of doctoral dissertations and theses that I've read, that he was virtually pa- plagiarized by a man who teaches a pastor in Tulsa by the name of Kenneth Hagin. And they, they are the father of what's called the faith or the word of faith movement. Now, all of these men that I'm getting ready to mention, and I'm not criticizing them personally, they're teaching a position. We want to evaluate the position. That's all we're doing. You may or may not have heard of these people. Personalities are not the issue. Doctrine is. I want to say that. In one of these cases, the man just went to be with the Lord this last week, and we have compassion for the loss, for the family, but we have to evaluate what the man taught, what the man did. In all of these cases, these are people who have serious, serious illnesses. They teach that sickness is a res- and disease is a result of sin in your life, and if you have it and have these, any of these diseases, the solution is faith, and God, faith in them and coming to them. Well, you know who they went to when they got diseases? They went to the medical center in Houston. They went to the medical center in Tulsa. They did not go to one another, and they know each other well and promote each other on their programs. So let's see. A man by the name of Doyle Harrison, Buddy Harrison, founded a publishing house called Harrison House Books. He's the son of Kenneth Hagan, who started this Word of Faith movement. And just this last November, Buddy died of cancer. 
what did he do to treat his cancer? He went through chemotherapy. He went into the hospital. He went to doctors. He did not follow what he taught. He taught that you don't do that. But when he got sick, he went to the hospital. E.W. Kenyon, who was the father, ultimately, of this whole Word of Faith movement and was one of the initial teachers of divine healing, said that it was always God's will, always God's will, to heal his children. Yet he died in a coma brought on by a malignant tumor. And uh, those in the Word of Faith movement, uh, for example, teach that Kenyon died sitting in his rocking chair and his daughters came into the room and Kenyon just said, there's Jesus, goodbye. But that's not how he died. He died, he had cancer, and he went to a doctor to treat his disease. Another example just happened this week. John Osteen, who's the pastor of one of these huge healing churches in Houston, went to be with the Lord this week from a heart attack. His heart was weakened because he had been had several illnesses, but he had been undergoing dialysis since last spring. Now, he had kidney problems, and he had a heart problem, and was he going to his good friend, um, Frederick Casey Price, or his good friend, uh, 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 what's his name, uh, Kenneth Copeland or Kenneth Hagen, in order to get healing? No, he was going to a doctor. He was going through dialysis every week. See, they're not practicing what they're preaching, and they're deceiving, deceiving hundreds. Another big movement that came out of the 70s that has distracted hundreds of people was the the power gospel, power evangelism, power healing movement of the Vineyard Movement led by uh, John Wimber. John Wimber died a little over a year ago. John Wimber died of, uh, of cancer, ultimately, and he had, had been plagued by heart problems for the last 20 years. And, and although John Wimber wasn't as strong in his faith healing as these other guys, what did Wimber do when he got sick? He went to the doctor. He was not going to these other faith healers. And there's a whole list of these Men, uh, R.W. Schombach is very famous in, in these faith healing circles. When he started getting having heart problems, what did he do? He got a quadruple bypass. He did not go down the aisle to, to Oral Roberts and have his good friend Oral Roberts heal him. Now, I'm not ridiculing these men. I am pointing out they are teaching something that they do not practice because it is not part of the Word of God. The Word of God does not say that healing is a result of sin. It is in some cases. And that you should be healed and that it is God's will for you to be freed from this healing. Catherine Kuhlman was an acknowledged divine healer. She died from heart disease and a barbiturate overdose. A.A. A. Allen, who was a well-known faith healer in the 40s and 50s, was a, uh, uh, also died from alcohol and drug abuse. Amy Simple McPherson, excuse me, Catherine Coleman died from heart disease. It was Amy Simple McPherson that died of an arbituate overdose. Gordon Lindsay, another very famous healer, died of a stroke and heart condition. Yet all of these people went around and have been major thinkers, publishers, writers, and television ministries, all promoting faith healing. Yet when it comes down to their own sickness and disease, where are they? They're at the doctor. They're at the hospital. They're undergoing chemotherapy. They're getting bypasses. They're taking medication. See, they don't live up to what they preach because what they preach is not reality. That's not what the Word of God teaches. Healing ultimately will come when the Messiah comes, when, there's, when He establishes His kingdom. That's what the Old Testament prophesies. When Jesus came, He gave us a taste of what that would be. 
But he was rejected by the Jews at that time, and the kingdom was postponed. In between, we have the church age. At the beginning of the church age, there were those who had the gift of healing to authenticate the message of the gospel that Jesus Christ had died on the cross as our substitute. But we will not see that again until Jesus comes in his kingdom. The only thing we will see until then is the false prophets and the false teachers and the Antichrist who promote signs and lying wonders. That's what the scripture says. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for the truth of your word that helps us to understand reality. There are many things that we see, many things we do not understand, but we know uh, that we can rely upon your word with absolute faithful faith and trust and reliance. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who does not know Christ as their Savior, that they would take the opportunity right now to say, forming words and thought alone, Father, I believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. That's all that's needed. It doesn't require commitment. It doesn't require baptism or inviting Jesus into your heart or emotion or anything else. Just simple acceptance of a free gift that Christ died is for their salvation. So, Father, now we pray that you would encourage us by the things that we have learned as the Holy Spirit brings them to remembrance that we might be strengthened by them in the coming week. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.